Amen. Thank you, Melissa. Great job. Great song. Go ahead and get in your Bible to Psalm 115. Psalm 115, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one near you. It's got a hard black cover. We will be on page 474. I think one of the wonderful things you can do when you listen to someone preach and teach the Bible is have a Bible in your hand and follow along. Psalm 116, Paul told the Corinthian believers to flee from idolatry. And that simply means that if you're here today and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are supposed to flee from idolatry. There should not be anyone or anything we admire, love, reverence, or worship more than God our Creator, Jehovah, the God of the Bible. And we are about two-thirds of the way through a 21-message Sunday morning series, uh, Learn of Him to Flee from Idolatry. Last week we talked about the fact that our Creator is righteous. God is righteous. To be righteous means to do what's right. God always does what's right, even if you and I can't see it, even if you and I cannot understand it. We talked about Jesus being righteous and loving righteousness, just like His Father in heaven. We talked about our Creator looking for those who believe in the Lord Jesus to live righteous lives. We talked about the fact that there are no perfectly righteous people, and so since a perfectly righteous God needs perfect righteousness, He offers us mercy in Jesus Christ because our works cannot earn us eternal life. And we just rejoiced in the fact that though our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, our righteous Savior paid the price through His blood and death and resurrection for our sins. Paul told the Corinthian believers, though there be many that are called gods, there is but one God. Though there is one God, the world of Moses and the Old Testament prophets was filled with many that are called gods. There was a pantheon of gods in Ur of the Chaldees when Abram left the land of his birth for the land God promised him. There were many gods in Canaan when Abram arrived there. There were a pantheon of gods in Egypt when God sent Moses to deliver Israel from slavery. There was gods of all sorts in the promised land when God brought the Israelite people there 40 years after he delivered them from Egypt. There were a lot of people in Chaldea, Egypt, and Canaan who sincerely believed in their gods. They sincerely followed their gods. But sincerely believing 2 plus 2 equals 5 doesn't make it so any more than believing that Baal or Ra were God. It is not the sincerity of our belief that makes something true. It is consistency with the written words of God that makes something true. What you believe or I believe, regardless of the sincerity of our belief, it does not change truth. And though there are many purposes for the Bible, the most important purpose for the Bible is for God to reveal himself to man. Anybody who's being honest that looks around at the beauty of nature, the complexity of biology, the perfect harmony of everything, both in the stellar heavens and in our world, would say there is a creator. But you can't learn what God is like from creation. If you want to know what God is like, we must look in the Bible where he's revealed himself to us. Unfortunately, a lot of people, instead of looking in the Bible to find out who Jesus has revealed himself to be, they create a Jesus in their own mind and after their own imagination, which is a form of idolatry. 
I think I echo the desire of most people here today when I say I would like to believe in, follow, and love God as He is. There's a story told about a small business owner who offered to take the families of his company to Disney World. The owner wanted to treat these families to everything as a gift, hotel rooms, meals, tickets to the park, everything they could possibly need to enjoy the trip as much as the owner and his family would. The owner offering this trip, he did have one condition, though, for anybody who went that they had to agree to, and it was this. If you pay for anything, you pay for everything. In other words, if you pull your wallet out to attempt to pay for even one thing, then you pay for it all. When it comes to grace and our salvation, Jesus has graciously paid for everything. And if we try to offer him anything to earn our salvation, then we have rejected the gracious gift of eternal life he offers us through Jesus Christ because God is gracious. If you're able to stand, if you would stand, please, this morning in honor of the Word of God. And Brother Jerry, you have finally succeeded. You greet Brother Jim standing up. He's 85. It's quite an accomplishment. In case you've never noticed, Brother Jim, for many years, was the first person to stand. I think he doesn't even wait till I ask sometimes. But Jerry now has succeeded him. We've got some big goals here at Bible Baptist Church. The title of my thought this morning is God is gracious. Psalm 116, we begin in verse 1. It says, I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications. Because he hath inclined his ear unto me, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. The sorrows of death compassed me. Pains of hell got hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then called I upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yea, our God is merciful. Thank you, you might be seated. The Psalms are actually an inspired songbook. And for anyone that is actually looking for the kind of lyrics that please God most, the book of Psalms would be the place to start. In contrast to much of what is called worship music today, the Psalms are characterized by content rather than repetition. And though there is repetition in a couple of the songs, Psalms, it has nothing to do with resembling what goes on today. If we were to study this inspired songbook, then we would find that the words mercy and grace appear in the Psalms 145, 145 times. You see, mercy and grace are linked together in some ways, though they are not the same. Mercy and grace are a couple of the words that are most commonly talked about in churches. They're a couple of the words that are most commonly part of the lyrics of songs today. Christian music that some is good and some not so good. But to the average Christian today in America, they could not actually define what the difference is in mercy and grace. In fact, if I handed out a piece of paper this morning to you and gave you a pencil, could you write down the difference in what it is to be merciful and what it is to be gracious? I hope you know they're not the same thing. 
They're linked together, but they're not the same. And the psalmist here begins this inspired song by giving the reason why he loved God. Notice in verse 1, he says, I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications. By the way, he loved God because God heard his prayers. See, I hope you know this morning, believing in God and loving God are not the same thing. You see, to believe in God, you actually decide to believe on and receive the Lord Jesus as Savior and as the Son of God. You humble yourself, you have a repentant attitude, and you call upon Him to save you, and He will forgive and save you. But to believe on the Lord and to love God, they're not the same. Too often, people use them as synonyms. Three separate times, Jesus said, If ye love me, keep my commandments. You see, keeping the commandments of God have nothing to do with believing on God, but if we would love God, we keep his commandments. By the way, which is a higher level than obey. Keep has to do with our heart. Keep has to do with respect. Those who love God, those who love Christ, they keep his commandments. But the psalmist here, he begins by giving the reason why he loved God. And though there are many good reasons both to believe and to decide to love God, the psalmist here, he not only makes note of loving God because God heard him, he's going to go into more detail and just talk about the fact that he loves God because of the way God was to him in low points in his life. Notice verse 2 begins with another because. And so that links what he's about to say in verses 2 through 4 with what he said in verse 1. I love the Lord because, in verse 1, and then in verse 2, I love the Lord because he hath inclined his ear unto me. Therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. The sorrows of death compassed me, and the pains of hell got hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. By the way, I am glad this morning that the God in the mountaintops of life is also the God who hears us in the inevitable valleys of life. You may be young and you may say to yourself, well, I've not really been in any valleys. Listen, in a broken world filled with broken people, there is no way to avoid times when we are in the valleys. The psalmist here says, you know what, I love God because of the way he was to me in the low points and valleys of my life. And after rejoicing in God, hearing him at the low points of his life, the psalmist then is going to note a couple of character qualities of Jehovah God. In verse 5, he's going to list three. He first says, gracious is the Lord, and righteous, there's a second quality. Notice the third one, yea, our God is merciful. He says first, God is gracious. He says secondly, God is righteous. We talked about that last week. Thirdly, he said God is merciful. We talked about that a few weeks ago, but for this morning, our focus is on the first part of that. God is gracious. By uh, Both the Old Testament and New Testament are filled with statements of the fact that our God, our Creator, is a gracious God. Turn back just a couple of pages to Psalm 111. In Psalm 111.4, the psalmist here says, He hath made His wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Remember in your King James Bible, when L-O-R-D are all capitalized, that is always the 
personal name of God, uh, Jehovah. Uh, Jehovah is gracious. What does it mean to be gracious? What does it mean when we say that God is gracious? There are quite a lot of people, they have the mistaken idea that somehow that God was not gracious in the Old Testament and that the grace of God is something that really began in the New Testament with the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear me, when someone thinks that way or talks that way, that is just not true. Uh, The God who is gracious in the New Testament was also a gracious God in the Old Testament and that's why the psalmist said, God is gracious. God did not become something different in the New Testament with Jesus Christ that he was not already in the Old Testament. God has always been gracious. You see, because God has always been gracious, Noah could, quote, find grace in the eyes of the Lord in Genesis 6, 8. Because God has always been gracious, even Lot, the wicked nephew of Abraham, found grace in God's sight, according to Genesis 19, 19. Because God has always been gracious, a murderer like Moses, quote, found grace in God's sight in Exodus 33:12. You see, because God has always been gracious, a fearful man hiding his uh, crops from the enemies of Israel found grace in God's sight to be a great leader in Judges 6:17. But it just goes back to that issue. What does it mean for God to be gracious? What does it mean when we read in John 1.14 that Jesus was full of grace and truth? What is the difference between grace and mercy? Could you define them? If you were here a few weeks ago when we talked about mercy, mercy in the Bible, remember, is not giving something bad that someone justly deserves. Mercy is not giving something bad that someone justly deserves. A parent who promises their child two swats when they get home, who only gives one, is being merciful. God is merciful to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because he spares us from the hell that our sins justly deserve. In contrast to mercy, which is not giving something bad that someone justly deserves, grace in the Bible is being given something good that we do not deserve. God's grace affects many areas of our life, though we most commonly only link it with our salvation. When uh, in the early days of my Christianity, I used to hear people use the acronym uh, for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. And at first I thought, wow, that's a great phrase. And then I thought to myself, what's that even mean? It's a great acronym, but what does it mean? Again, if I gave you a piece of paper and I said, write down what God's riches at Christ's expense means, what does that mean? It's certainly technically true. It's a great phrase. But listen, grace is getting something good that we do not deserve. See, God gives heaven by grace to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Something good we do not deserve. God gives natural gifts to every human being. He gives spiritual gifts to every true believer, not because we deserve them, but because God is gracious. Listen, if you're here today and you're actually a human being rather than an alien clothed and a human body, you have natural gifts from God. 
If you're here and you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have at least one spiritual gift from God. And God did not say, wow, you know what? There's a person who's worthy of having the natural gift to play the piano. Or there's someone who's worthy to have the spiritual gift of teaching or the spiritual gift of exhortation. God doesn't do that. By grace, he looks out and he says, you know what? I'm going to give you this good thing. You don't deserve it, but I'm a gracious God. And so here it is. God's graciousness is involved in our salvation. God's graciousness is involved in our eternal security as believers. God's graciousness is involved in the kind of discipline that God gives every child whom he receives. Because God is gracious. He gives good things to people of all sorts who do not deserve his goodness or good things. You ever heard someone ask the question, why did Bad things happen to good people? You really, you understand, of course, that's not actually a good question. See, the best question is really, why do any good things happen to any of us? And the answer to that is really pretty straightforward. God is gracious. He gives good things to all sorts of people who do not deserve them because he's gracious. What I'd like to do this morning for just a few minutes, in light of the fact that God is gracious, I would like to make some observations and applications of God being gracious. Please first turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I love it when people bring their Bible to church. I love it when people, I hear the pages turning. At Bible Baptist Church, we on purpose keep the lights in our congregation high enough so that you can see your Bible. This is not an entertainment platform up here. Some observations and applications of God being gracious. Here's number one. It is impossible to appreciate God's grace until we grasp what we really deserve. It is impossible to appreciate God's grace until we grasp what we really deserve. Um, here, as Ephesians chapter 2 begins, he's going to describe our condition prior to coming to Christ. And i got to be honest with you, I don't like the way I'm described. Now, it, dis- it accurately describes the way all of us were before Jesus Christ. But I don't like how I'm accurately described. But if I'm ever going to understand God's God's graciousness to me in my life, I have to understand who I really am. Notice in Ephesians 2, 1, he says, And you hath he quick and make alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. I don't like that I was described spiritually as dead in my trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead. Notice verse 2, it says, We're in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. I don't like the fact that I was just described as walking the way of the devil. Doesn't mean it, it wasn't true. L- listen, I never bit a head off a bat. Not a baseball bat, the mammal. But, but, Prior to Christ, I was walking the way the devil wanted me to walk because he is the God, small g, of this world. 
Notice as he continues to describe us, he says, among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. I don't like that description, that I spent my life filling the desires and lusts of my flesh and mind. And then he tops it off and he says, we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's the condition of every lost person. It doesn't matter if you give a million dollars a week to good causes, that's who you are, spiritually speaking. And if you and I are ever going to understand and appreciate God's grace in our life, we have to understand and grasp who we really are to appreciate His grace. I don't like to think I was that bad. In fact, the matter is, is probably most people, compared to the people in this world, you weren't that bad. But God isn't comparing us among ourselves. What he's doing is he's comparing us to the perfect moral laws of God has lived out in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what that does is it leaves every one of us as dead in our trespasses and sins, walking according to the lusts of our flesh and of our mind. It leaves us as children of wrath. And what that means is when I understand who I was, I can begin to appreciate God's grace in my life. As long as you and I think we deserve eternal life and salvation, as long as we think we deserve health and wealth, we'll never appreciate God giving us eternal life through Jesus Christ or any measure of health we have. As long as we think we deserve God's kindness, as long as you and I think we deserve to be loved and favored by God, we'll never appreciate God's grace and being kind to us. God's grace in loving us unconditionally. God's grace in favoring us. As long as we think we deserve all the good things that happen to us in life and all the good things He has planned in eternity, we'll never appreciate God's grace in giving us good things in life or giving us good things in the future in Christ. Hear me this morning. No one deserves any of the good things God has given us in life. Any good that I have, any good that you have, have always been because of the grace of God. And sadly, because so much of American Christianity is silent about the righteousness of God and silent about the holiness of God and silent about the justice of God and silent about a judgment seat that all believers will stand and give an account of themselves and silent about a great white throne where which those whose name is not in, written in the Lamb's Book of Life will stand because the church is silent about those things. We have no real appreciation of the grace of God. you appreciate the good things in your life? Or honestly, do you just feel like you deserve them? Listen, God loves us, not because we deserve it. God is good to us, but not because we deserve it. God has gifted us, but not because we deserve it. God never leaves us or forsakes us, but not because we deserve it. You and I, if we are ever just honest, we have so many good things in life because God is gracious. Do you have an accurate view of yourself in light of this truth? If you cannot pause this morning and just sit back and rejoice in the graciousness of God in your life, it's all because you have too high of an estimation of who you are 
and why you have what you have. Can I encourage you this morning to face who you really are in light of who God is so that you would begin to appreciate God's grace to you. But it's not just that we cannot appreciate God's grace until we grasp what we actually deserve, both in life and eternity. Secondly, this morning, uh, God is gracious in offering forgiveness to us as a gift. Notice just a few verses down in verse 8 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. He says, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So well, where, where do works come in then? Well, we don't memorize verse 10, but that answers that question, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Listen, it is God's plan that every Christian, every true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ would do good works. That's God's plan for your life. But we read in verse 8 and 9, but that those works have no part of our salvation. Those are some of the most familiar and beloved words in all the New Testament. In fact, if you haven't personally memorized them, I would challenge you to write those down right now and commit verses 8 and 9 to hide God's word in your heart. See, God offers eternal life, salvation, forgiveness by grace to every repentant sinner who will humble themselves and call upon the Lord Jesus. That's true today here. If you would humble yourself, in the moments of invitation, just not too much in the distance, if you would humble yourself, and if you would call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, he would save and forgive you. And in contrast to the clear message of the New Testament and God telling us that salvation is by grace and not works, most people who know little or nothing of the Bible think they'll live forever because of their own goodness. That's very different from the Bible and the New Testament plan of salvation. Paul says, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, Christ is dead in vain. Did you hear the strength of those words from Galatians 2.21? Did you hear the strength of those words? I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Listen, what that simply means is that if you and I could obey the commands of God to live forever, then Christ died for nothing. That's very strong. But the fact of the matter is, is that your good works and mine, your religious works and mine were all inadequate, they were all tainted, and so that eternal life is not by works, it is by grace through faith in Jesus. Can you look back on your life and find an unmistakable moment when you humbled yourself to call upon the Lord? I didn't ask if you repeated a prayer that was on a card I did not ask if you repeated a prayer your parent told you to pray. I didn't ask if you come down an aisle and said some words. I didn't ask any of those questions. I said, has there ever been a time when you humbled yourself to call upon Jesus to forgive you for your sins and he saved you? You see, when Jesus is in your life, it changes your heart. There is no such thing 
as a human heart where Jesus dwells that is not changed. It is virtually impossible for the Creator to live in a human heart and it have no impact on their life. Has Christ changed your life? I'm not implying you have to have the same change in your life that I had in my life because I didn't hear the gospel until I was 24. I'm not implying that the change in your life at age 6 is the same as the age 15. I am saying this, is that when Christ is in your life, regardless of whether you are a young child, regardless of whether you are a teenager, regardless of whether you are an adult, when you call upon the Lord, Jesus changes every heart in which he lives. There's a story told about a man who dies and he goes to heaven and Peter meets him at the pearly gates. And I know this is bad doctrine. It's a good story. And Peter says to the man at the gates, he says, here's how it works. You need 100 points to get into heaven. You tell me the good things you've done and I'll give you a certain number of points for each of them. And depending on how good it was, uh, when you reach 100 points, you'll get in. Again, this is bad doctrine, good story. Man says, wow, okay, I, you know, you thought he'd been pretty good. Man begins, he says, well, I was married to the same woman for 50 years. I never looked at pornography. I never cheated on her, even in my heart. Peter says, wow, well, that's wonderful. That's worth a point. Man says, one point. Man says, well, I went to church every Sunday and Wednesday all my life. I supported the ministries with my tithe, tithe and my service. Peter says, wow, that is terrific. That's worth a point, too. The man says, good golly, one point. The man says, well, I started a soup kitchen in my city. I worked in a shelter for the homeless for 25 years. Peter says, fantastic, that's also worth a point. By this time, the man is shocked, and he says, at this rate, the only way I'll get into heaven is by the grace of God. Peter is not in charge of the pearly gates, and nobody gets in heaven based on points. But everybody that gets into heaven will get there by the grace of God. God is gracious in offering salvation as a gift to those who would place their faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you haven't done that, I plead with you. I plead with you in Christ's stead. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now hear me this morning when I say it is not just that God is being gracious when he offers us salvation as a gift through Jesus Christ. Go next in your Bible, if you would, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Back just a few pages in your scriptures. I use an electronic Bible every day of my life. I use the Bible in my phone every day of my life. I use the Bible in my computer every day of my life. But there is no comparison to holding a paper copy of God's Word that you just let, uh, that you mark as you go through life. Someday, and who knows, maybe tomorrow or today, uh, when I finish my course here, when I leave my Bible, Somebody will be able to look back and watch what God taught me all my life. 
I can't think of a better legacy to leave your children and grandchildren. Go ahead and leave them your phone. We all know three years from now, if Christ tarries, the technology in your phone today will be useless. Not, not this. See, God isn't just gracious in offering us salvation as a gift through Jesus Christ. Number three this morning, God is gracious in giving believers sufficient grace in our trials. God is gracious in giving us sufficient grace in our trials. By the way, Paul, he, he was probably the greatest missionary of all time, probably the greatest Christian of all time. Uh, you could argue about th- those sorts of things. You, you cannot argue with someone that God chose to write at least 13 and maybe 14 of the 27 books in the New Testament. And contrary to... The charismatic message that began uh, in the early 20th century that if you have enough faith that you you won't have any trouble and if you have enough faith you're not going to be sick or hurting or any sorts of things that basically leave people feeling helpless in that lie. Paul, on the other hand, he had a big physical infirmity. I'm sure Paul prayed about this physical infirmity regularly he would have done just what you and i did every day uh lord please help me with this please take it away but on three occasions paul had what we would call a special season of prayer there was a time when paul says you know what i'm not just going to talk to god about this casually i'm going to beseech the lord in a special way i'm going to pray i'm going to focus i'm going to fast because maybe just maybe god will Hear that and make me better. Let's read his journey with his physical infirmity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, he said, Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. So that's his problem. Notice the source of the thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Lest I should be exalted above measure. He says, For this thing I besought, the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. Notice Jesus' answer. He, that's Christ, said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Notice what Paul concludes from Jesus' answer. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Nobody, nobody says, God, please give me this infirmity. God, please give me this serious problem. Nobody prays and thinks like that. And yet the God who knows everything, the God who is more interested in making us better people than making our lives easy, that God gave Paul this thorn in the flesh. I think it had something to do with his eyes. I'm not here to talk about that this morning, but I think that was his problem. And God said, as Paul sought the Lord, my grace is sufficient for thee. 
Listen, God didn't take Paul's infirmity away, but God did, did give Paul sufficient grace to bear it because God is gracious. Listen, if you're here this morning, you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is sufficient grace from God to bear whatever you're facing. Did you hear me? If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is sufficient grace for you to bear whatever it is you're facing. I mean, Paul said, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. Listen to me. In my infirmities, in my problems, in my valleys, there is sufficient grace for me. And if you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus, regardless of what your spiritual gift is, regardless of whether you're 12 or 92, there is sufficient grace from God to face and overcome whatever it is you're facing. Sometimes there are no catchy phrases or words of wisdom to keep us going. Sometimes the only thing that keeps us going is just some grit in our soul and the grace of God. There are times when all of us, we get in places in life where we need to stop thinking about tomorrow's difficulties because all we have is sufficient grace for that day. And at that time, the best we can do is have some grit to keep moving forward and say, God, I need grace to make it through the next four hours. God, I need need grace to make it to the end of this day. God, I need grace. And God gives sufficient grace. Sometimes all we can do is fall on our knees and seek grace enough for that day. And God makes sure we get it because he's a gracious God. Listen, every spouse needs grace from God to lovingly work together at times. Every parent needs grace from God at times because the situations with your child at that moment are especially difficult. Every ministry leader, every ministry worker, every employee, every person of any sort of every age needs the sufficient grace of God at times because the valley is deep and the times are dark. Isn't it not great news that God is gracious? that he gives sufficient grace as his children struggle in their trials. Let me ask you this morning, have you taken your burdens to the Lord and left them there? Listen, taking them to the Lord and taking them to the Lord and leaving them there, they're two different things. It's much easier to take them to him than it is to leave them there. But whoever you are, Whatever you're facing, you take your burdens to the Lord and leave them there. And there's sufficient grace for you to do whatever's next in your life. All over this room are believers who would testify to not knowing how you would get through the next day. And by the grace of God, you got through that day. All over this room are believers who testify to facing something that you thought was too big to possibly face. And somehow, you had sufficient grace to face it. Thanks be unto God that he's gracious. And in light of God being gracious, we need to be gracious people. To be godly means to be like God. If God is gracious, that means believers in the Lord Jesus should be gracious. 
I hope if someone who knew you well was describing you, they wouldn't describe you as someone who is exacting. But they would rather describe you as someone who was just and gracious. Do you always give more good than someone deserves in a situation? Do you give more good than you get from the church? Do you give more good than you get in your ministry? Do you get more good than, than you get from your family? To be a follower of the gracious God and the gracious Savior, you and I need to be gracious. I'm told there were 39,000 applications for Harvard's incoming class of 2020. I'm told the school accepted 5.2%. Harvard president Drew Gilpin Faust said, we could fill our class twice over with valedictorians. This might be shocking to you, some of you moms who feel like your child is the next Einstein, but one of the most prestigious elementary schools in the country is Hunter College Elementary School in Manhattan, New York. Each year they accept 25 boys and 25 girls from all over Manhattan for their kindergarten class. They get 2,500 applicants and they accept 50. That's an acceptance rate of about 2%. Can I just tell you the acceptance rate of those who come to God through Jesus Christ is 100%. And the acceptance rate of believers who come to God through Jesus Christ for sufficient grace is also 100%. Because God is gracious. If you quietly stand.